Take your Bibles out and turn with me today, please, to Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at the topic of warfare in heaven. Warfare in heaven. And that title might surprise you a bit, but I think it'll come clear into focus later on in the context of the message. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who was given the two wings uh, was given the uh, two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. You know, folks, sometimes people say, why study a book of the Bible like the book of Revelation? Well, for several reasons. Uh, number one, we need to keep in mind that the book of Revelation is every bit as much a part of the inspired Word of God as the Gospel of John, for instance. It's God's Word. And so we need to learn the whole counsel of God. But secondly, we need to keep in mind the overarching theme of the book of Revelation, and that is that we win. Because Christ won. 
And he shares his victory with us. Amen? And we need to keep that in mind sometimes as we see what's going on in the world and become discouraged over it. We need to understand that the world and the devil doesn't have the final say. And so we see in the book of Revelation uh, this ultimate victory that we share. And again, it's a reminder to us of that and of what our glorious future is. And then lastly, I would say we need to keep in mind that blessing that John gave us in chapter 1. That there is a blessing to those who read and hear and understand and apply the book of Revelation. Because again, it's meant as an encouragement to the saints. A stern warning, one last warning to those who are not ready to meet the Lord. And it plants within them a sense of urgency. It's very evangelistic. And then great encouragement to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, oftentimes we don't like to talk about warfare. But we know that it is through warfare that you have established peace that we can enjoy. We thank you that there on the cross Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And the battle was ultimately won right there. And Father, we know that one day you're going to come for your bride and we will be in heaven around your throne. And we will see in that day that it has all been worth it. And all the struggles of this life, all the wars, all the battles, all the trials that we've been through will pale by comparison. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on that day and as Titus 2 reminds us to be looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand today the warnings in this text as well as the blessings. To those who have yet not come to faith in Christ, that your spirit would be at work on their hearts today. To those who have made that decision, that they would be blessed, that they would be uplifted, and that they would be reminded of the weapons that we have in this spiritual warfare. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Back some years ago, Frank Peretti came out with a series of fictional books with titles like Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness. And at the time of their publication, they were some of the hottest selling books on the market. I'd liken their popularity to the Left Behind series that Dr. Tim LaHaye came out with about 15 years ago. 
Now some felt that Frank Peretti took too much license in his imaginations of the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Now whether or not you're of that opinion or otherwise about how much license he should have taken, nonetheless, folks, he was trying to highlight for us the fact that we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on. And as a whole, this is a thoroughly biblical idea. It's spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, you'll remember how Daniel prayed to God for his people. That they would have guidance as the Babylonian exile came to an end... And that God's plan would not be done yet for Israel. Now we're told in chapter 10 that from the moment of that prayer by Daniel, God heard that prayer and he dispatched an angel to come and deliver the answer to Daniel. But then something happened. We're told that that angel with the answer to his prayer was intercepted by a demonic personality. And he said he wrestled with that demonic personality for 21 days. But he said, now I'm here to give you this answer. And so we see there spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. And then we come to the New Testament, to the passages of of Scripture like Ephesians chapter 6. Where Paul says, for we wrestle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so the thought of spiritual warfare is thoroughly biblical. Folks, we as believers dare not underestimate the extent of this battle. Now as we get into Revelation chapter 12, we need to understand that we are witnessing a text here about spiritual warfare. We need to be reminded that we are still at the midpoint of the tribulation here. Now we've been in the tribulation all the way back since Revelation chapter 6. From Revelation chapter 6 all the way up until Revelation 19, John is writing about the period known as the tribulation, that seven-year period. And when we come to chapter 12, we are approximately at the midpoint of that time period. Now as we read about the tribulation, we have seen things like the seals being broken. And with the seals being broken, there was the appearance of the Antichrist. There was bloodshed, there was famine, there was warfare. We saw an earthquake and other natural disasters. Not only seals being broken, but trumpets being blown. And as those trumpets were blown, they too announced different judgments. We saw a third of the earth being burned up, a third of the sea becoming as blood and the creatures being destroyed, a third of the fresh water turning bitter and poisonous, and a third of the heavens being darkened. We witnessed there also hordes of demonic forces being unleashed. 
to those who are still dwelling upon the earth. And, and John said that men will desire to die during that period of time, but will not even be allowed to die. And then he wrote, uh, wrote about this great army that will come from the east. Now folks, as bad as those images seemed, we've not seen anything yet. When the church is taken out of here and hell breaks loose on the face of the earth, there are going to be disasters and evils all over the globe in multiplied fashion. Now today, let's launch into chapter 12. Now for many people, chapter 12 can be a very puzzling text. For one thing, they, they think, you know, it's kind of maybe an odd placement. I mean, after you finish reading chapter 11, it seems like the victory has been won and the next thing that's going to happen is we're going to be ushered in to the end time events that we'll begin reading about in Revelation chapter 20 when Christ sets up his millennial reign and we reign with him and then after that we go into the glories of heaven. That's almost what you would expect after the end of chapter 11. That we would immediately go into times of paradise. But we don't see that. As chapter 12 opens up, we see that we are right back in to more tribulation. Now what's important to see at this point is that whereas in chapters 6 to 11... We were told about many of the horrific events of the revelation... Uh, of, the, of the tribulation rather, in chapters 12 and following, we're not just going to be told about continuing events, but we're going to be told about the main players, the main characters involved in the tribulation. We're going to be introduced to the dragon who of course is none other than Satan. And then in chapters 13 and following we're going to be introduced to, to, to two different beasts. One of them is the Antichrist and one of them is the false prophet. Now another reason that chapter 12 can be a bit confusing is that it covers so much time. From eons past... When Satan was originally cast out of heaven all the way up until the very end of the great tribulation. Still another challenge for the interpreter is the fall of Satan out of heaven in verse 4 and the fall of Satan out of heaven in verse 7. They are not one and the same event as we'll see in a moment. Now as we get into chapter 12, we see that it is essentially about warfare. This world has been riddled with warfare. In fact, those who have taken note of years of peace and war since history began being recorded have noted that this globe has faced very few years of peace. Since time has been recorded, it seems like all over the globe, somewhere, there's either been a civil war going on, there's been a government being overthrown by its people and a new one being established, or one nation has been rising up against another nation. 
And every year that is taking place somewhere on planet earth. There have been very few years without any type of wars being recorded. The world has been riddled with warfare and it's been devastated by warfare. We know that that sometimes war comes at a great cost. I was reading some time ago about the rebuilding plan of Europe after World War II. World War II cost almost $1.2 trillion and as many as 50 different countries took part in the war. An estimated 55 million people worldwide lost their lives. Some countries lost as much as one-tenth of their entire population. In 1947, George Marshall uh, proposed the European recovery program called the Marshall Plan and it helped earn him the 1953 Nobel Peace Prize. But again, the cost of war was staggering. Well, warfare can be devastating, but it can also be very freeing if the enemy is turned away and defeated. And so war, while devastating and costly, can be worth it. Well, we see today in our text that there's been war in heaven already and there's yet to be another war in heaven. Now, if we think the wars on earth are grand in their scope, folks, we haven't seen anything yet. There's been one war in heaven and there's coming another. Now, I hope that doesn't mess up your thinking about heaven too much. When we think about heaven, we think about peace and glory. We don't think about war. And yet there has been a war that accomplishes the peace that we enjoy. Let's look at that today. First thing I want you to see with me is the woman. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. John writes about this great sign. Now we're going to see that word great used a number of times in this chapter. A great sign, a great red dragon, a great eagle. What we have here is one of the many symbols of the book of Revelation. We have a sign. We do not have a literal woman, but we have a sign. A sign, of course, is something that points to something else. There's the sign of a woman. But this is no ordinary woman. This woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now ladies, how about that for a wardrobe? Well, that's a wardrobe you can't go to Concord Mills and buy, right? Verse 2 says she was pregnant. Now the question is, who is this woman? Now while many things in the Bible have been puzzling to me or challenging to me, I must admit this has never been one of those puzzles. But apparently it remains a puzzle to a lot of people. Some have arrogantly claimed that they are this woman. 
Mary Baker Eddy, for instance, the founder of the Christian Scientist Movement, said that she is the woman of Revelation chapter 12 and that the child that she gave birth to was the Christian Science Movement. As Dr. H.A. Ironside said on one occasion, that view is so ridiculous it doesn't even deserve a response to those of a sane mind. The Roman Catholic Church has said that this woman is the Virgin Mary. And we'll see in a moment how that's not the case either though. Some have said this is the church. And likewise that can't be. The church didn't give birth to the Lord Jesus. Rather the Lord Jesus gave birth to the church. And so who is this woman? Well it's Israel. Look at the description again in verse 1. And what does that description in verse 1 remind you of? Is there any other passage in the Bible that verse 1 would remind you of? And the answer is yes. All you would have to do is go back to Genesis 37 and beginning in Genesis 37 verse 5. The Bible records for us the dreams that Joseph had. And you remember that Joseph told his dreams to his brothers and then his father. And the image that Joseph told in those dreams is the very same image that we read of here. In Joseph's dreams, uh, these different images were used to describe those who make up Israel. Now if that doesn't make it clear, remember that this woman was with a child. If you look down at verse 5, it's easy to see that this child is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now who gave birth to Jesus? Well, Mary did of course, but Mary doesn't fit the description here as we'll see later on in the chapter. It's Israel. Jesus was born a Jew according to the flesh. There are many things that we can thank the Jewish people for. Paul talks about that in Romans 9. You know, first of all, when God looked down from heaven and decided to form a nation that would be a light to his glory, who did he pick? He picked the Jewish nation. Now, he says it wasn't because they were mightier than the other nations or more numerous. In fact, God said the exact opposite about them. They were smaller than the other nations. But God was going to bring glory to himself through them. And through them he gave the commandments. Not only did he give the commandments in the scripture through them, but he gave the Savior through them. And that's why Paul was so grieved for the Jewish nation. Back in Romans chapter 9, he said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now listen to what he says about them. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Folks, we need to pray for the Jews. I am so glad that God is not done with the Jews yet. 
Now here we have a picture of the nation of Israel about to give birth to the Messiah. And so for some reason in this vision that John received on the Isle of Patmos, John has been taken back to the past. I was wondering about that. Because you see, so much of Revelation 6 to 11 has been pointing us forward to the future. And so why here would John be taken back so far to the past? And it dawned on me, one of the reasons perhaps. Remember I said in chapters 12 to 19 we're going to be introduced to the characters of the tribulation? Well, who's one of the primary characters of the tribulation? Satan is. Well, we're being shown here, I believe, that the enemy that we have has been around for a long, long time. The enemy that this world is going to face in the tribulation is no stranger to the human race. And that's what John is being shown. Satan has been around working his woe for a very long time. Now folks, we need to realize this. We need to realize that we have an enemy. Some Christians get up and go about their day every day and it's like they live their Christian lives and and they're totally unaware that they have an enemy. But the Bible says that he is there and he is very real and he seeks your destruction. And so let's look at him. Second thing we see here is the warrior, the enemy. Look at what John says here in verses 3 to 4. He says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We're told that John was shown another sign, an image of the one who has been the enemy or the warrior to the human race for a long, long time. He is being shown as the warrior who for ages has even tried to take his stand against God himself. And look at the way he's described here. He's described as a great red dragon. He's great. In other words, he's no small enemy. 1 Peter 5 says, uh, Satan is like a roaring lion going about in the earth seeking somebody to devour. In Jude 9, even Michael the archangel either could not or would not face Satan in his own power, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. He's described here as being red, the color of bloodshed, and so much of of what he's caused to be shed, uh, blood on the earth. Pain and suffering. He's described here as a, a dragon, an ugly beast, having seven heads, a number of completeness, also a sign of wisdom. Satan is wise and crafty. He's described here as having ten horns, another number of completeness. Horns are a sign of power. This is saying that he is a powerful foe. We dare not underestimate him. 
Now some here also tie the ten into the ten nations of the revived Roman Empire at the end of the ages. Now if we had time, we'd turn all the way back to Daniel chapter 2 and there we would see the vision, the dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar had of this statue of a man with a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, a torso of bronze and legs of iron and then the feet and the ten toes were mixed with iron and clay. That statue stood for the kingdoms that are going to rule on the earth. Daniel was being shown uh, of the future kingdoms, beginning with the Babylonian kingdom. And then after the Babylonian kingdom, there was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after the Medo-Persian kingdom, there would be the Greek kingdom. And then the Roman kingdom. And then coming out of that fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, many scholars see in those images the revived Roman Empire. As you read some of the passages in Daniel and in Revelation, it certainly appears that there's going to be a revived Roman Empire with the nations of Europe making that up. What do we see today? We see the European Union. Now, I agree with those scholars in the big scheme of things, but I have to wonder if that's really what we're intended to see in verse 3 about the ten horns. It may be referring to ten nations that rule at the end or it may simply be a sign of Satan's power. Reminding us that we don't want to underestimate Satan's power. Now look at verse 4. He says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That takes us all the way back to those passages in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 38. What do we find there? We find in those passages the origin of Satan. That Satan was created to be a beautiful angel who would minister in the presence of God. But Lucifer became puffed up with pride and he wanted the worship that belonged only to God. And so he rebelled against God and led a rebellion and a third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. And that seems to be what's being referred to here. Then we're told that he stood before the woman to devour her child. Satan has long showed how he despises the Jewish people. After Joseph's death, the devil tried to eliminate the Jews in Egypt and God raised up Moses to deliver them. From the time they left Egypt, he tried to destroy them in the wilderness with various nations. And then in the book of Esther, wicked Naaman came up with a plan to exterminate the Jews. And he failed, of course. Nation after nation has come against Israel. In modern times, you have the likes of somebody like Hitler who tried to wipe out the Jews. And today we have that madman who leads Iran who says he wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Folks, why all of this hatred against Israel? I think it's because it's through the Jewish people that we've been given the scriptures and the Savior. Now here Satan is in verse 4, he's trying to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes me think of what he tried to do through Herod. Herod finally ordered the killing of all the male babies up to two years of age. 
Then we have the wilderness temptations. Satan tried every way he knew how to destroy Jesus there. And he must have thought he had destroyed him at the cross. But all he did uh, at the cross was to seal his own doom. Now verse 5 speeds us rapidly through the life of Christ right up to his ascension. Verse 5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The ascension. Then in verse 6 we see a huge lapse of time. All of a sudden we're in the great tribulation time. Again, there's the question. Why do we have all this recorded here in this fashion? I believe it is to show us how Satan has always been against God. He's always been against God's people. He is our ancient foe and it will be so right up to the end of time. That's why God's people have got to be vigilant. Turn with me over to Ephesians 6. Listen to what Paul says about this spiritual battle in Ephesians 6. Starting in verse 10 there, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Folks, again, what we see here is that we have an enemy. We have a warrior. He's against us. Because it's his way to get at God. And he hates God. He hates the Lord Jesus. And he hates anybody who's a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus. And Satan wants to make your life and my life miserable. And how sad that so many of us get up every day and go about our day. And again, we're not even cognizant of the fact that there is one who opposes us. We need to be wise to his schemes and we need to understand that we have a very loving, commanding officer. Our Heavenly Father has given everything that we need in this spiritual warfare. He's given us everything that we need in day-to-day life to be able to fight our enemy. But what Paul is saying is we need to put on this spiritual armor. And we need to stand firm against the evil one because he's going to come against us. Just like John is describing here. And then thirdly, I want you to see the warfare beginning here in verse 7. Listen to what John says. He says, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. 
Now here we have what I believe is a time of warfare that has not taken place yet. There's going to be war in heaven. We're introduced once again to Michael. He's one of the few angels actually named in the Bible. When we see him mentioned in the book of Daniel, he is a guardian angel for the Jewish people. Now verses 8 and 9 here tell us that Satan and his, de uh, his demons were cast out of heaven. Now you say, wait a minute Scott, what in the world is Satan doing in heaven? I thought you said back in verse 4 that he lost his place. Well, he did. As far as heaven being his place of his permanent abode. You see, again, he was created to be an angel there in heaven. To dwell permanently in heaven with the other angels and to worship and serve God. But he lost his permanent abode in heaven. But it appears now that for some reason known only to God, Satan has continued to have some type of limited access to heaven. The Bible says he is a roaring lion. He's walking about to and fro in this earth seeking somebody to devour. But look at what John says here in verse 10. He says our ancient foe, Satan, he appears before God day and night and he accuses the brethren. And isn't that exactly what we see in Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1 says there was a day when all the angels appeared before God and look who was there in their midst, none other than Satan. And God said, what are you doing here? Where have you come from? And Satan said, I've come from roaming about on the earth. And God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is nobody quite like him. He fears God and he, fears, and he shuns evil. The point is, the angels were gathered before God in heaven, and who was there? The devil. So apparently, he currently has some kind of limited access to go before God and accuse you and me. Jesus said in Luke 22 to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And literally in the Greek text, it's Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission from God and been granted that permission to sift you as wheat, but when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And so Satan has limited access today to God to accuse believers. But folks, the good news of what John is talking about here, Satan is not going to be allowed to do this forever. In fact, we're told right here that at the middle point of the tribulation, Satan is going to lose his ability to show up in heaven. Verse 9 says he's thrown down. That makes me think of what Jesus said about the tribulation period. He said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
And so at this point of the tribulation, Satan's going to be thrown out of heaven once and for all. And look at what happens when he's thrown out of heaven. In verse 10 it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan loses his access to heaven. He's thrown down. That's a signal to him that he knows his days are almost up. The inhabitants of heaven are told to rejoice because he can no longer appear there to accuse us. But he warns those on the earth. He says, woe to you because Satan's come down to you in great wrath knowing that his time is short. We'll talk about verse 11 in a minute. But let's continue with verse 13. John says, and when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagles so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Now folks, what have we said is going to happen During the tribulation, at the beginning of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel. And they're going to be allowed to rebuild their temple and reinstitute the sacrifice. But as the book of Daniel talks about, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, and as the book of Revelation talks about, halfway through the tribulation, after three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to break that treaty with, with Israel And then the last three and a half years of the tribulation are going to be especially difficult for them. Jesus said of that, he said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel spoke of that happened in his day and Jesus said it's going to happen again. When you see that abomination that causes desolation take place, you better come down off your rooftop and you better flee. Where? Flee out into the wilderness. And he said, woe to those who were expecting or nursing babes in that day. He said, in that day there's going to be a time of tribulation such as has never been before and never shall be again. And John is describing that here. That the forces of the devil are going to come especially against the the Jewish people and they're going to flee out into the wilderness. And the promise here is that God is going to provide for them in the wilderness just like he did in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. 
He says, the wings of the eagle shall be given to her. Oftentimes, the wings of the eagle were used in Scripture as a symbol of how God lifts up and protects and provides his people. In Exodus, he says, I brought you up out of Egypt on eagle's wings. And he's going to do that again. He's going to protect them. Verse 15 here he says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. What's the flood here? I think it's the same that Isaiah 59 talks about. Isaiah 59 describes this flood when all the nations of the world turn against Israel and come against her. That's what's being described. And when that happens, the promise here is that God is going to take care of his people. What's being described here is what Jeremiah refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. God helps the woman. He frustrates every attempt of Satan to completely wipe out Israel. When Satan sees that he can't win on the wilderness front, look at what he does. He turns around. He goes back in pursuit of those who did not flee to the wilderness. Now you might be thinking, Scott, if we've got such a warrior against us and we're engaged in warfare, what chance in the world do we have? I'm glad you asked that question. I want you to see lastly, the weapons. The weapons. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now folks, these are the weapons that the tribulation saints overcome the dragon by. And if these are the weapons that they defeat Satan by, these same weapons are available to you and me today. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons that, that we need in spiritual warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. The weapons of nations today are absolutely useless in spiritual battle. For spiritual battle, we need spiritual weapons. And that's what we have. What's the first weapon we have in our arsenal? The blood of the Lamb. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Calvary. Folks, in this battle against the evil one, where the evil one wants to have the souls of men and women forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, the first weapon in the arsenal that God has provided is that we have forgiveness and we have redemption at the cross. 
The Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you come to faith in Christ, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And, and you are never, you are never going to be faced with being shoveled out into an eternity without God. In fact, for the believer, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The Lord has won the ultimate battle at the cross. He's redeemed us. That we might be with Him forever and all eternity. And so that we might not have to be with the devil in hell. If you don't know Christ, you don't have that assurance. You don't have that promise. But if you know Christ, should the worst thing happen to you on earth, that is you should die then all that's going to do is usher you into the very presence of God. Ladies and gentlemen, through the cross, we win. The blood of the cross. Don't you ever think that at the cross, the cross was nothing more than just a good example of one man dying for other men. The Bible says a heavenly exchange was taking place. Redemption was taking place. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. He paid the penalty for your sin and my sin on the cross. There was a heavenly exchange that took place there. The Bible says you are not purchased with, with worldly things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ shed His blood for you on Calvary's cross that you might be saved, that you might be forgiven, that you might have peace with God, and that you might be reconciled to God, and that forever you might spend eternity in your heavenly home with your heavenly Father. Second weapon against the enemy is the word of your testimony. You can share with others the grand old story of redemption about how they too can have victory in Jesus and be at peace with God. And through is something as simple as sharing our testimony and other people being won to faith in Jesus Christ. Guess what? They're moved out of the devil's army and they come over into God's army. Every time somebody's won to Jesus, it's one less in the devil's army and one more in God's army. Amen? And so a weapon that we have in spiritual warfare is evangelism. Telling people about Christ. And then the third thing he mentions here is they love not their lives even unto death. Boy, that tells us something about these tribulation saints, right? Here all hell is breaking loose on the face of the earth. I mean, if, if anybody would have ever had opportunity to compromise their faith in the Lord Jesus, it'd be those tribulation saints. I mean, they're going to go through tough times. 
But they remain strong for Jesus. And many of them are even martyred for their faith. Jesus said we don't need to fear those who can only kill the body. But can't touch the soul. Jesus said you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And that has profited you nothing. If you have to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel, guess what? Again, now I don't want to make light of that pain or suffering any of us might have to go through. But we go through that if we have to become a martyr for the sake of Christ. Guess what? We ultimately win because we go to be with God in heaven. But it's that mindset, that attitude... That my walk with Jesus, my faith in Jesus, my relationship with Him is even more important than my earthly life. Boy, now that's the key for victorious living, right? That's the key. Because if that's your attitude, that should trials and tribulations come, Should you even have to give your life for the sake of the gospel, nothing is going to turn you away from faith in Jesus. If that's your attitude, this world cannot defeat you. The world will beat up on you and beat up on you and beat up on you. But if you have that steadfast faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're able with that perfect peace that passes all understanding to rise above it all. Those are the weapons that we have. Again, warfare breaking out in the tribulation. Warfare now. There's a spiritual battle going on around us. God has not left his children without weapons. He's provided for us everything that we need. I want to invite you this morning to come to Christ. You see, in spiritual warfare, you need to make sure that you have the right commanding officer. In the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther wrote, We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing, our striving would be losing. Folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your striving is losing. You need Jesus Christ. Only through Christ can you win this battle. And only through Christ can you be strong on a day-to-day basis against your enemy. With Christ, you have The armor of God that you can put on. Are you going through some spiritual battle right now in your life? It might just be bad circumstances or it could be satanic or demonic attack. But the point is there's armor that you can put on if you know Jesus. Do you need to put on that armor today? 
I want you to be praying for your brothers and sisters all over the world too who are going through battles. In some nations of the world, folks, it's more than just people fighting. There are some nations of the world where the Bible's not allowed, where missionaries aren't allowed, where churches aren't allowed. Do you think the battle is just physical? It's way more than that. It's spiritual too. And we need to be praying for them. Come to Christ, have the right commanding officer, put on the armor he provides, and pray for your brothers and sisters in the Lord who might even now be going through great conflict. Amen. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind us. I'd love to pray with you about you turning your life over to Christ. Maybe you know that you're a soldier in God's army, but you're trying to fight the battle alone. You don't have a church home. You need a church home with other believers who can pray for you. You come forward as well. Or if you are a believer engaged in spiritual battle, just say, God, thank you for the reminder today that you have provided by your grace what I need. And ask for wisdom to walk wisely in spiritual warfare.